want to go to Africa, Phil? Yeah, I do, but I don't know which country to go to, Kim. Ooh, luckily, we're going to shine the spotlight on Ethiopia, and after this episode, it will be on, on your list. list. Welcome to the War Nomads podcast, delivered by War Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveller. Thanks for tuning into the World Nomads Travel Podcast. It is Kim and Phil with you, along with a group of expert travellers introducing us and you, all of us, to Ethiopia. As we will discover, Ethiopia is a place of ancient culture with archaeological finds dating back more than three million years and it's the only African country never to have been brought under colonial control. A widespread famine affected the country in the 80s. Do you know it killed 1.2 million people? Yeah, it's terrible. We'll discuss safety in Ethiopia later in the episode. But a couple of interesting facts. Uh, (laughs) Interesting and confusing. Ethiopia (laughs) has... 13 months in the year, so technically it's still 2012 there now. (laughs) I like that. You can go back in time and you're younger. Yeah, and it's because they follow the Coptic calendar. We'll explain what that is in show notes. And the clock starts when the day does. So sunrise is 1 o'clock and sunset is 12. (laughs) This is doing my head in, Kim. Well, let's get into it then and find out more about this fascinating country. Alicia Erickson is a digital nomad. She's based between Seattle, East and Southern Africa and India. Now, Alicia's thirst for travel inspires her writing and drives her to seek out those off-the-beaten-path destinations and stories of places that have yet to be told, like Ethiopia, a country, Phil, she was totally floored by. Oh, gosh, Ethiopia is just incredible. Oh, man, it's... I spend most of my year, the year, travelling just with the nature of my job um, giving me so much flexibility, and I find it more and more difficult to find countries that just shock me in a good way and that just really feel like, wow, this place is authentic. Just a handful of tourists and the most incredibly diverse ancient culture. Um, and it just feels very old world. Like I felt like I was walking, you know, in the mountains with shepherds and donkeys and houses that have not really been changed for 2000 years and um, ancient relics and having dinner around fires, talking about Ethiopian politics and eating and Jara from the same plate, and it was just, it just felt almost biblical in a way. Um, yeah, so few countries these days that really have just kind of made me smile the entire time I was there for both the good and the bad, um, because <laughs> there is definitely, a, you know, some adventure along the way. So a little, um, a little like Rwanda is emerging as a, as a go-to destination following the, the genocide there uh, around 25 years ago. And for me, when I think of Ethiopia, I think of that famine. Obviously, they've been able to pull themselves out of the shadow of that. Yeah, you know, it's incredibly complex. There's not so much attention to what's going on in Ethiopia. And certainly, it's complex. Uh, there's, you know, complicated political issues. There's still a lot of food security issues, which has caused mass displacement within the country. Um, and talking to locals and talking to some um, expats working for various aid organizations there, it's a massive problem still. But like Rwanda really seems to be promoting tourism. I see that in the same way in Ethiopia, Um, but it's still very accessible. And um, I wouldn't 
say that the underlying political tensions and the issues with the famine and everything have impacted one's ability to go and explore and experience the country. We know that you're widely travelled. How distinct then is it as an African destination? Yeah, it's so completely different. And I think that's why I love it so much because I do spend a lot of my time um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And unlike a lot of the places which are wildlife and um, safari destinations, so to speak, um, Ethiopia is not, although it, it does have its own unique wildlife, like the uh, gelato baboon, um, which roams in a couple of the northern highland areas. But what I'm so drawn to it is the rich culture, the really preserved history, which you don't see so much um, in sub-Saharan Africa. Of course, unfortunately, um, a lot of that got wiped out um, with a real colonial um, presence and influence. And Ethiopia, with very, very little um, European um, and foreign presence, has really preserved this thousands of years old language, um, which sounds nothing like other um, languages in East Africa. They have the Ethiopian Orthodox religion, which is so distinctly unique, and it's found in churches which are over a thousand years old and has very traditional ceremonies. And it's different in the food, which um, also originated well over a thousand years ago. It's distinct in the fact that while coffee is grown there, like in a lot of the other regions, people actually drink it. <laughs> they keep the best beans to themselves. It's not exported. And it's very much part of their traditions, their day-to-day um, coffee ceremonies where incense is burned and the coffee beans are roasted over an open fire and then ground by hand and brewed several times over as And of course, Ethiopia itself is incredibly diverse and complex with so many different ethnic groups and cultures and languages within it in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, I really would say that the history, the language, the food culture is nothing like the rest of the region. And speaking of the politics, do the women really rule the roost? (laughs) I think you wrote that half the cabinet positions belong to women. This is progressive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's very progressive. And when I was there, well, the bits I was trying to catch um, with a bit of translation and very broken um, um, Amharic and English exchange um, sort of gave me a, a window, um, a little peek into the window of what's happening. And there is a lot of change happening. And especially the younger generation, um, I spent quite a bit of time talking to um, them, particularly in the capital, and they're very, very welcome of the change and the progression and the presence of women. Unfortunately, it's not welcomed by all in such a large country and that's highly traditional. Those changes aren't, while they might be happening um, on that larger political scale, they're not necessarily happening on a cultural scale. Um, so it's something that I <laughs> I believe, from my understanding, will take quite a bit of time. Um, and there's still a lot of um, unrest that's somewhat surrounded by the issue of women, but also surrounded by the issue of a new um, ethnic group being in power. And there's always going to be a power struggle um, with that. But yeah, but change is happening nonetheless, which is a beautiful thing to see. It is important to know going in that it's not the easiest country to navigate. It's a big country with 
not particularly the easiest um, travel route or overland transportation and it can get a bit expensive going in with a bit of a bit of patience and an open mind and i think it's been the most one of the most rewarding and memorable countries i've been to well, a great start as we explore Ethiopia. Thanks for that, Alicia, who's written a couple of articles for us. One on an area there she explored with terrain that feels more like Mars or Venus than planet Earth. <laughs> okay. And also an article on women's safety, both in show notes. And regarding the politics that Alicia mentioned, Phil, is that causing any issue for travellers? Uh, look, at the time of recording this, it was suggested that travellers exercise a high degree of caution in Ethiopia overall due to possible civil unrest. Avoid any protests and that sort of thing, uh, but do not travel to border areas with Sudan, Eritrea, Kenya, South Sudan, Somalia, or the Gambella and Somali region. Always border regions uh, are places where there are conflict as well. I know there was a warning about possible attacks going on. They happen from time to time. They put those warnings out when they think there's a credible threat, but they sometimes go away after that as well. So be alert, not be alarmed. alert, not alarm, and check all those government travel alerts that are specific to your country of residence, and check out our tra- travel safety alerts on worldnomads.com too. Nice one. We'll have a few more commonly asked questions about travel to Ethiopia later in the episode. But Ellen Hall is our content producer for World Nomads. She's based in our North American office, and she is the one that you need to convince if you want your travel story shared. <laughs> yeah, Ellen is about to give us some insight into Ethiopia's highlands, but how, Ellen, did you find it as a destination generally? Um, It was really interesting, and I think um, I knew a little bit about it before I went, but but I think that I wasn't really um, expecting it to be so different than um, what just the usual concept of Africa. I mean, it's it's, um, a lot of high elevation areas. It's um, very Christian. There's wildlife. It's not your lions and elephants and things that you ordinarily associate with Africa. So, um, and just the landscapes are really also not really what I was picturing. So, um, and we covered a lot of ground and there's, there's quite a lot of variety. What are some of the places in that surprised you? Yeah. So um, the Simeon Mountains is the first place that, that one of the first places we went. Most of it, well, about two thirds of Ethiopia is covered by um, what they call the highlands. And so it's all, uh, you know, it's pretty high elevation and goes up to like, I think, 13,000 feet. So, you know, pretty high. And it's very, um, a lot of very sharp pinnacles and, and um, uh, mesas. And it was all very green and lush. And that's um, was not really what I was expecting. Uh, that, that was surprising. What I also found interesting is um, it's, there's a lot of big population in Ethiopia. It's, I think, the second most populous country in, in Africa, if I'm right. Um, and there's just agriculture everywhere, even, even in Simeon Mountains National Park. It's, um, you know, lots of the park is actually cultivated. There are some places that are not, though that's not allowed because it's protected areas for the, for the Walia Ibex. But just everywhere you look, people, people, and, um, and the agriculture is still being done, you know, by oxen and plow and what I, I don't know what I was picturing but it's just uh, endlessly fascinating. Tell us about the people that you met there as well I mean lots of them but were they nice as well? Oh yeah everybody was lovely um, we um, we were traveling around quite a bit so I would unfortunately didn't probably get to spend as much time with the locals and you know chatting with them as you might like but um, but we did uh, stop in at a village at a, um, a, a local home and had a, a tea ceremony there, a coffee, I should say, a coffee ceremony, because they're very famous for that. And the ceremony is very, has its, you know, it's a ritual. You do that, you, 
roast the beans, you grind the beans, or the woman does, and, and um, lays out all the cups in front and um, you know, pours it for you, and, and uh, coffee's delicious. And so um, we did meet some kids. I actually met more people in the Omo Valley, which is not something that I talk about in the article. That's, that's, those are the tribes, some of the, the famous tribes that live in the, the Southwest. And there, um, you know, we didn't have any common language, but there was quite a bit more interaction, just being there, hanging out with them, kind of seeing them uh, doing their, you know, what they do in their daily lives and, and um, um, some of their traditions. That was very interesting as well. I know you mentioned animals and in my reading that I've done on Ethiopia, there is a lot of bird life. You are a frequent guest on the, on the podcast, but many people may not realize that you're a twitcher, isn't it, Phil? Is that it? <laughs> someone that loves birds. Yeah. You know, that's not really, a, we don't really call them that in the, in the States, but I do call myself a bird nerd because it's true. Um, my <laughs> husband and I are both very interested in birds and there is, um, you know, it's uh, anywhere in Africa. I think you're going to see a lot of interesting bird life, but um, you know, the, uh, because it's, it's an elevation, you see a different, um, different species. And um, especially when we were in, in the Bali uh, mountains national park, um, our naturalist guide was, was happy to hear that we were, uh, birders. And so, uh, we kind of made a, um, sort of a challenge. We gave ourselves a challenge of trying to find 50 species in the, in the, in the one day that we had there, the one full day. And we didn't, we got pretty close. Um, and there'd be, yeah, they're really, you know, all kinds of, you know, you have a lot of beautiful raptors and you have more songbirds and flycatchers and, um, just, and rails, all kinds of variety. So that was really fun for us. Yep. You are a bird nerd. Yep. <laughs> I, as, you were, as you were talking, I was hearing David Attenborough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, I can bore people for a long time talking about birds. <laughs> One of the things that, you know, it's not really on the tourist or on the travel map. It's, you know, tourism and travel is quite new to Ethiopia. Yeah, I think so. I think it's definitely growing um, and there is more of a um, getting to be more of a, a travel infrastructure there. Um, we traveled... Um, you know, you can get around on short flights and um, if you're, you know, if you want to spend the money, you can also charter flights. We did fly around a fair bit, but um, we also drove around a lot and it's, um, it's, uh, the roads are not in many places um, in the greatest of shape. And there's, and they use it for, people use it for the herding, herding goats across and, you know, school children are walking to school and you have um, kids driving uh, horse-drawn carts and it's, uh, it can be quite a you know, bit, um, I don't think I would want to drive there, um, but you certainly can get around. It just takes a long, uh, a bit of doing, getting from place to place. That's the kind of traffic jams you want though, isn't it? <laughs> it's true. It is true. Definitely there's, there's, there's more, you know, lodges. There is um, some camping of the, the places, the national parks, you, you, can, you can camp and, and um, a lot of people do multi-day treks. They may hire a horse um, or, you know, some horses to carry their gear. And, and so that's, that's definitely possible. But I do feel like a lot of people aren't, there's a lot of people aren't aware of what there is to see and do there. The main thing, the, I think the main reason that most people go or have been going is because of the, the churches in Lalibela. And these are these um, amazing churches that are carved into the rocks. And so they're kind of, you know, set in a pit. And but they're, they're these big monolithic churches and the insides are, are carved into archways and they're all uh, you know, brightly painted and they're still very much in use. So um, if you go, you might have to wait for the service to be over with before you can go in. Um, and so people have, uh, go there, um, have been going there for a long time, but I don't know that they, some of the other things to see and do there are, have really caught on. There's also other places to see these, these 
these churches. That was another thing that, that I found um, wasn't really expecting to be impressed by as much as I was. There's an area called Giralta, which it's all these beautiful um, sandstone uh, valleys and, and pinnacles. And, you know, it's very beautiful. But in, in all those cliffs, you, there's like about 120 of these little hand rock carved churches that you have to climb up the, you know, a path or maybe even climb an actual cliff <laughs> to get to these churches. That's uh, an area that I was uh, just really impressed by and, and kind of was a highlight that I wasn't expecting. Thank you, Ellen. Now, regular listeners to the podcast would know about our travel news segment. Now, we promised you more audio in 2020. So what we're doing is creating a weekly five-minute wrap-up of travel news, and it will be available soon from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And we've replaced it with your questions. It's useful, practical information related to the destination. It's the stuff you want to know. Yeah, that's a very sensible idea, that, <laughs> I thought. Look, some of the more commonly asked questions about travel to Ethiopia include, is it safe? Well, I think we just kind of addressed that earlier in the episode. And they also asked, do I need a visa? Uh, anyone travelling to Ethiopia is required to apply for an e-visa via an online form. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, of course. That enables you to visit the country for up to 90 days. You must be a citizen of one of the eligible countries to apply and that costs around 52 to 72 US dollars and that includes an e-visa, application revision, communication with the government and assistance. If you're not one of the eligible countries, you probably have to go and go and apply for a full visa, which means going to the Ethiopian consulate in your country. Other travellers want to know what vaccinations you need. The World Health Organisation recommends hepatitis A, hepatitis B, typhoid, cholera, yellow fever, rabies, meningitis and polio. Look, it's rabies, but the same thing that you get to prevent rabies is the first of three injections you get if you catch it. Okay. All right. A lot of people, and this is entirely up to you, but unless you're going there and you're going to be, you know, going on a farm or working closely or living closely with animals, which is pretty likely in rural Ethiopia, I wouldn't bother about the rabies vaccination. Yeah. Certainly hepatitis A and B, and you should have all those other ones. They do wear out eventually, so make sure you can you can go and see your travel doctor, see what you need a booster for, and make sure you've got all of those things. Yeah, okay. I better write that tetanus down. I haven't had one for a while. Oh, I haven't stepped on anything sharp and rusty for a while. I have, so I know I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) And when to travel to Ethiopia? The best time is September to April, either at the end of the rains in April when the land is dry and barren, or as it flourishes again in September to October. That was almost poetry, Phil. Well, what type of travel insurance do you need for Ethiopia? All right, that's the sort of question that people ask if they're not buying similar to a World Nomads product, like a comprehensive travel insurance product. I think what people are asking there is they're saying, do I need medical evacuation coverage? Do I need medical costs coverage? Do I need theft and loss of belongings? That A lot of people are used to buying those things separately. You can buy them all in one in a travel insurance product like World Nomads. So make sure you uh, do your research, make sure you buy a policy that's suited to your particular circumstances. That may not be World uh, World Nomads policy. Pick one that's absolutely suited to you. We're happy as long as you've got the uh, correct protection. It doesn't have to be ours. If something really, really bad happens to you there and you need, you know, intensive medical care, um, you need medical evacuation insurance. Yep. 
risks. So you need to be able to get out of there and get somewhere where you're going to get the proper cover. Okay. Now that we've mentioned insurance, do we have to play some I, think, I think I've got one lined up right here, Kim. <laughs> the information we provide about travel insurance is a brief summary only. It does not take into account your personal needs and does not include all terms, conditions, limitations, exclusions and termination provisions of the travel insurance plans described. Coverage may not be available for residents of all countries, states or provinces. Please carefully read the policy wording available at worldnomads.com for a full description of coverage. Best disclaimers ever. <laughs> Thank you. Now a reminder if you'd like to get in touch, email podcast at worldnomads.com. Change of pace now, but still in Africa. Angie Davis, one of our featured Amazing Nomads, suggested we speak with Jane Winyard, who Angie met in Nairobi and discovered they were kindred spirits. Yeah, look, Jane ditched a 10-year fashion career in London to go to Kenya and is now working full-time at Save the Elephants, which we're about to hear more about. But first, let's find out what inspired Jane to move to Africa. But I was looking for a change. I'd, I'd been in London for sort of 12, 15 years and been in fashion media for 10 years and... I actually, what what the, the change came about because I discovered photography, loved it so much and realized I had a bit of a, a, a knack for photographing wildlife. And I don't know where this, this decision came from. It sounds a bit crazy, but I thought, right, I'm giving up my career. I'm going to go and chase photography. I'm going to go and work in conservation and I want to go back to Africa. You know, I, I, it took me a long time to make the jump because I was leaving, you know, a well-paid job and a career and a life in London and, you know, designer clothes and celebrity parties and stuff. But I just felt like I, I wasn't really fulfilling my life and I wanted to do something that, that would give back um, and make a difference. So um, I did a lot of courses in photography. I did a lot of courses in um, helping me make a decision to actually leave my career because it was very scary. You know, I was, I was really leaving behind a lot of comforts. But um, a friend of mine who, who knows the CEO of Save the Elephants, Frank Pope, put uh, me in touch with him and he invited me out for two weeks to, to do um, field photography for Save the Elephants. And, I mean, that was it. I was so hooked. Um, and, yeah, that's how it all started, really. And how's it worked out for you then? I'm, I mean, what, what's the transition been like? Because, I mean, a lot of people are scared about making the jump. Um, it's, you know, it's been so smooth. I can't even begin. It's been the smoothest transition I've ever made, going from New Zealand to London, going from journalism to PR. But going from London to Africa has been so smooth. I, I, I mean, it's, you know, there are challenges. There's obviously language, there's culture, there's, you know, I'm living in the bush with scorpions and snakes and, and wild elephants. But mentally and um, emotionally, it's been a really, really easy transition. It feels like it's the right thing. I feel like I'm on the right path. I feel like I'm meant to be here. Um, the work is incredible and it doesn't even feel like work it feels like like a like my life you know I don't feel like I'm working I feel like this is just my life and you know it's it's um yeah it's been amazing I'm very very lucky I, I don't take any of it for granted and I pinch myself every day still and I've been here what two and a half years tell, tell us about this this organization that's grabbed you so say the elephants is actually it's a research and conservation organization it's based in Kenya it, was founded by zoologist um, Ian Douglas Hamilton 25 years ago. And we conduct research into the ecology and behaviour of wild elephants. Um, we have a research station in Samburu National Reserve, which is where I'm currently based um, in northern Kenya. 
And we have a team of amazing researchers that go out every day studying wild elephants. They go and record their, their movements, their behavior, you know, their families, their social structures. Um, and there's about, I think they've identified about 900 elephants that live in these reserves along the Owasso River. And, you know, the, the knowledge that they've got of their family structures, of their, their history has really opened this incredible world into the, you know, opened up this sort of amazing insight into the world of elephants. And we also have a second research station in Sagala and Savo, um, where we have this amazing project called Elephants and Bees. It's run by Dr. Lucy King. Um, and it's, they've introduced beehive farming to stop elephants from, from raiding crops in the local villages. Uh, and it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's developing a sort of harmonious existence between humans and elephants. The farmers get to, to, to make a small income from the honey that they produce from these beehives. And it's now in 19 countries around the world, the project. And um, it's having it's sort of 82% effectiveness of proving that it keeps elephants away from crops. So, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff happening with this organization. And it's, it's really exciting to be part of it. I see, so you're telling me elephants are frightened of bees? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, when, when they touch the beehive fence, when they touch the wire, the bees start buzzing. And we've seen elephants actually running away from these beehives. So, yeah, they're scared of bees. Why is there a need, Jane, for an organisation like this? At the turn of the century, there were a few million elephants in Africa. Today, there are between 400 and 500,000 on the entire planet. So, you know, elephants are in, in, in endangered. Their future is, is very fragile. You know, we're, we're helping to, to protect these elephants and to make sure that they have a future. The other thing about elephants, too, is... is they're, they're landscape gardeners they're, they're the, of the ecosystem. They have a really important role of keeping ecosystems alive. And, you know, there's been research recently that shows that the, the extermination of forest elephants could have a major impact on climate change. So it's, it's you know, it's important for organisations like us to protect elephants, not just for Africa, but for the entire, entire world. How bad is it now, poaching of ivory? Poaching in places like Kenya um, has has reduced which is great um but places like central africa and the congo poaching is still really 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 bad in mali you know there's a small pocket of elephants left in mali which are under under siege from poachers you know there are elephant populations are recovering some places like garamba and zakuma and and zambia you know the poaching has reduced and, and elephants are recovering but the ivory trade is still their biggest threat to elephant populations across the continent the demand for ivory has been around for centuries China, you know, has been one of the most prolific users and, and uh, of, of ivory. But, you know, the China ban, which was introduced um, beginning of last year, has been one of the biggest steps to have occurred towards the end of the ivory crisis. But the problem is that, you know, despite China closing its ivory trade, there's still a thriving market, illegal ivory trade to countries like Laos and Myanmar and Vietnam and Hong Kong where the sales of ivory have now shifted to. So we're, we're finding through our research that people from China are actually now buying ivory from these, from these, these countries, um, which means that, that elephants are still being killed. You know, but the demand for ivory and the price of ivory is still way too high. But right now our focus is, is to really to, to try and persuade Chinese people not to buy ivory from these illegal markets that are mushrooming around around Asia. Listening to you, can you imagine uh, a future where you're not involved in this? I mean, you know, it would be, it would be great not to have to have, not to have to protect elephants for them to be able to roam free wild across Africa. But at the moment, you know, 
Yeah. I, I mean, in some ways, I, I probably I'm sound selfish because I absolutely love the work and the job and it's incredible. And I love the people I work with and I love working with elephants. And hopefully we'll always study elephants because their behavior and their movements is so fascinating. But, you know, to have to protect them, it would be fantastic if, if they they no longer needed our protection, if, if ivory was no longer something that people wanted and used and that elephants were no longer killed. Um, yeah, of course, it would be it would be fantastic. But I hope to always work with elephants because they are the most incredible and, and most intelligent animal I've ever been around. How close to them do you get? I mean, are you able to, you know, obviously you recognise individual elephants, but do you get close mm-hmm. enough to be able to form some sort of bond with them or do you have to keep too much of a distance? You know, I mean, they're wild elephants, so we have to be very careful. But in Samburu, um, because we've worked with them for 25 years, the, the Samburu population of elephants are probably the most relaxed. Um, they know our vehicles, they know our researchers, so they tend to get very close, they're very relaxed around us. We have one bull elephant called Anwar who actually likes to stick his head on top of our car, have a good scratch. But obviously we don't touch them and they don't touch us, but they're very curious and they'll come around the vehicle sometimes and put their heads on the bonnet and, you know, David Doublan, who's our head of field operations, he seems to be an elephant magnet because whenever I'm in the vehicle with him or other people are in the vehicle with him, the elephants just crowd around his vehicle and, you know, he, he knows them all by sight and I guess they probably know him as well. So we get close, but, you know, we have to also keep our distance because, of course, they are wild elephants. We've heard how you got involved, but how would um, people that are listening to this become involved in some of the, the projects the organisation is carrying out? I think the best way for people to get involved, obviously, is, is um, awareness. It's just to go onto our website, see the projects that we do, share our stuff on social media, talk to other people about why elephants are important. There's a lot of information on our website about you know, how elephants, um, uh, sort of landscape gardeners, the impact they have on the ecosystem, why they're important to the planet, um, information about what incredible animals they are. Um, so it's spreading awareness and also, you know, educating people about why ivory is, is bad and why we need to end the ivory crisis. Um, and also donate, you know, I mean, every little bit helps and, you know, every, every donation helps to make a better future for elephants. So those are the two kind of key ways that people can get involved. Definitely awareness and, and, and donating. Well, as we mentioned, Angie put us in touch with you. She's been one of our most popular amazing nomads. She describes you both <laughs> as surfer girls, gypsies who have chosen the path of responsible travel and fallen in love with Africa, elephants and simplicity. Does that sum you up? That definitely sums me up. It sure does. Thank you, Jane. And Phil, honestly, it is so hard to believe Africa's elephants could disappear for much of the wild within a generation. I know. Yeah, no, too soon. Like, we've got to do something about that. Absolutely. Look, and of course, a link to Save the Elephants and the great work they are doing in show notes. Give them a hand. Yes. Mola Miharitu is the, and I googled the translation of that. So, (laughs) okay. He's the general manager of Ethiopian tour company FKLM. And he joins us now to tell us about the company and a little bit more about his country. Thank you, Kim. FKLM Ethiopia Tours is an eco-friendly and socially responsible uh, destination management company. Uh, based in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, uh, covering Ethiopia, Djibouti, Somaliland, and now we are working to add Eritrea as well. And FKLM, the name stands for the first alphabet of my families and who contributed a lot for me to be here today with you. And it was named when I was at high school. 
So you, you, really, you can understand that the travel business was already my dream. And I'm truly, I feel uh, I'm fortunate enough to realize it. What is it that it does? What's the strengths of the company? Uh, okay, so as um, a destination management company, uh, uh, I, I know you, un- you understand very well what the destination management company is. Yep. The service, including current rental service and hotel booking, and tours, group tours, package tours, private tours, uh, and also airport transfer. So anything to do with a destination in general. Uh, when we see the strengths, uh, um, the strengths um, is that FKLM Ethiopia Tours is not just a company uh, established uh, to make profit only. It has a human character which understands the environment, our staff or the staff, uh, the destinations, the suppliers, uh, local communities, and 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 like that. Uh, and our history is. Um, a story of compassion, love, and care. Uh, maybe we'll, we, we will discuss further on this on another occasion. Actually, I have a plan to write a book about it. It is a very beautiful story, I tell you. Oh, no, let's, let's hear the story now. We love compassion. Okay, you know what? Because I feel it is so important. It's kind of a, a rare story. And that is the reason I want to write a book about it. And I hope you don't mind if I, t- if I don't tell you today. Okay. But as I said, it, it is a it really amazing story. And I promise I will do. And you will be the first people to hear it. We will hold you to that promise. <laughs> Absolutely. So our strength is about our passion for the environment and for the community where we, we are operating in. And the motivation behind that, were there other tourism operators there who were not doing that? Did, is that why, the, why you started? Exactly. Um, unfortunately, the tourism industry is just starting in Ethiopia and we do not understand the impact yet. And our understanding, what I mean is the industry in general in Ethiopia, uh, for the environment or the impact we have towards the environment and to the indigenous people, people are not really aware, or I should say they are not conscious enough what's going on. Uh, For example, we have some places which have had some problems. It's because of some stakeholders. For us, looking at the problems and looking at the problems and the destinations in general, we want to be very different to that. Um, And so the difference, okay, as you say, the intention or the background for us to to focus on the environmental friendliness and on social um, issues is because of the prevalence of the problem in, in Ethiopia in general. Um, as I said, uh, Ethiopian tourism industry is just starting. This means we have a good chance to influence the direction we would like to go. Ethiopia has a very good potential to be a sustainable destination. We use nearly 100% renewable energy and wealth distribution from income generated from a tourism industry is also one focal point. Uh, for example, we must employ local guides at each destination whenever we travel or whenever we take groups. Uh, that is so, uh, so that the income is fairly distributed to each local instead of staying with one tour operator in the capital. That's one big way. And another one is we use public transport than private arrangements. So that makes us already, we are in the direction of sustainable travel. As you said, we have untouched tourism uh, potential. And of course, that has to be sustainable. And we have to make sure that this great destination, this untouched destination 
will work on the foundation of sustainable travel. Sounds like the perfect destination for a nomad, Phil. Totally. If we talk about the African, what makes different to other African countries, I think. Yes, yes, we would, I'd like to know that. So what does make Ethiopia different to other African destinations? Nowadays, um, connectivity is also important. Ethiopian Airlines is connecting the globe to Africa and Africa to the globe. Uh, so Ethiopia is well connected. That means uh, it is more accessible for the international travelers. Uh, let me put it this way. Ethiopia is a combination of many African countries as a tourist destination. For example, if we talk about ancient history, most people will associate the Egyptian pyramids. And Ethiopia has also prehistoric sites going back 800 BC or before. Example is the Aksum Obelisk was built 800 BC, around 800 BC. Or other people will talk about safari in Kenya or Tanzania. And of course, Ethiopia has its own endemic wildlife, such as the Jelada Babun, Wali Apex, Mountain Yala, etc. And of course, we have lions and giraffes and elephants too. And of course, when people think about Africa, the other ones about tribes. For example, we say Maasai tribes for Kenya or the, Him- the Himbas in Namibia. We have so many of them in the Omo Valley over 56 different tribes, very unique in a way. And Ethiopia has a little bit of everything. When you drive from destination to another, all the way is also a destination. Uh, Because of the lifestyle, the topography, the weather change, every few hundred kilometers. Driving around Ethiopia is also, we call it a roadshow. That is Ethiopia compared to other African countries. I had no idea it was that diverse. It's, you know, really another one of those destinations that it's just, uh, I, I'm just so eager to go and see it. You are forcing me to say a few more words. If you yeah, go mind. on then. <laughs> when we say Ethiopia, you know, our, our tourism motto is land of origins. It's because we, Ethiopia is the origin of humankind. You know, have you, I'm yeah. sure you have heard yes. of coffee and coffee is from a place called Kaffa in the southwest of Ethiopia. So coffee is originally from Ethiopia. And of course, Ethiopia is one of the oldest nations in the world with its own, with its own of course, civilization and also with its own writings and scripts. Ethiopia is shadowed with the uh, famine that happened in the 70s. Yeah. So instead of all these great histories and great, really great potential in terms of tourist destination, I think people, what, what, what comes to the minds of people when they think of Ethiopia at the famine, unfortunately. But I'm, I'm glad that there are people like you who would make this known. And that's the main reason that Ethiopia is becoming a very hot destination at the moment. It's, it's considered as kind of exotic destination and we see a great growth. Um, for example, last year, uh, the tourism industry has grown by 48% last year or nearly. So it's because of the promotions or because of the, the opportunities um, Ethiopia has got for, from people like you. Well, that is a perfect way to wrap up this destination episode on Ethiopia. It's been our pleasure, Mola. You could learn a lot from him, yeah. Phil, on politeness. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have, <laughs> we'll have 
links to Moller's company, more information and some photos in show notes next week, Phil. Oh, look, we're going to explore Muslim travel with Glory Ali. Bye. Bye. Bye.